Good evening. Welcome, Brett. Nice to have you here. I think this is your second time, huh? Yes. You'll be here for a few days. Good. Good. Warm day, huh? It's a nice time of year here. So, any questions tonight? Yes. I was wondering if you ever heard um, Shriya Maharaj talk about um, Samajai Sachinanda, the inspiration for composing it, or... song we sing at night, one of the songs. Yeah, it's a, it's a song that he composed, and it's written in Bengali, which is his native tongue. And... Um, it's a form of Bengali that uh, is called sadhu bhasha. Sadhu means like the saints or mystics, and bhasha means language. So the sadhu bhasha of Bengali has got a lot of Sanskrit mixed in with it. You find that in Chaitanya Charitamrita, one of our main texts, that my forthcoming book is my fourth book, book is a comment on the preface, the sacred preface. 14-verse preface of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And um, Chaitanya Charitamrita means the immortal nectar of uh, the character, immortal nectar and nature of consciousness, the possibilities, the prospects that lie um, within the subjective world, the super-subjective world world of consciousness proper as opposed to the prospect that lies uh, before us in relation to the world of things and thoughts. Hmm. And so that book is in Sadhu Bhasha, so you, it's a fair number of the words besides the Sanskrit verses that are cited here and there in the Bengali itself are Sanskrit, and if you know, if you go to Bengal and you speak the Sadhu Bhasha, no one will understand what you're talking about now. So it's a, it's a little bit of an older form of Bengali, kind of a sacred form, if you will. Um, so it's written in that form, and um, the the song is um, one that that. Um, in an overarching sense, depicts the sensibility of one who will be successful in their approach to uh, divinity, um, which is quite, in one sense, the... um, antithesis of how we might become successful in this world in a crude sense that means to say it's said if you if you get ahead you have to step on people's heads to get ahead and in in the song it's more about having your head stepped on to get ahead so like the devotees they're putting their heads down it's a way of greeting showing respect uh, and so on and so forth um, the feet in ancient India, of course, where, well, they are in every society, the bottom of everybody's body and that touches the ground. But uh, um, especially in, in, in barefooted culture, then they get a little bit 
dirty, so it's the kind of the, one of the dirtier, if not the dirtiest parts of the body. But the idea in the, in the Sanskrit language and poetry and so forth that glorifies the feet of the sadhus is a way of saying that those who walk in the world only for spiritual purpose, with spiritual insight and purpose in mind, even their feet are holy. In fact, their feet are sometimes called lotus feet. And the lotus in the Indian uh, spiritual uh, text, the sacred text, is the kind of the epitome of the, 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 the example of, the prime example of beauty in the world, the lotus, the lotus flower. So, lotus feet. Sometimes you'll see this term used describing the sadhus. So it means the way that they walk in the world, not stepping on other people's heads to get ahead in an aggressive way, in an exploitive way, but um, rather approaching the world in a very different uh, manner. Just like in, in modern so science, for example, we tend to want to control material nature and harness the, the forces of nature for the purposes that we conceive of between our ears, which could be pretty small in the larger scheme of things. And therefore, nature resists to some extent, we could argue. But then again, they're successful to some extent as well. But then the measure of that success is brought into question when the apparent success, as it often does, turns into something else. When we're able to do away with weeds, with Roundup, and then we end up getting cancer by eating food that's sprayed with Monsanto's Roundup, then <laughs> it, it may backfire. So often we find this to be the case. Not that we shouldn't try to work with nature's forces and, and within reason, improve our material situation, but the mere improvement of the material situation unto itself is thought to be a folly because, after all, it's, it's, it, it doesn't endure. The death percent is, is, is 100% still at this time. Everyone dies. We were talking about the other night how the Burmese culture, I had read an article recently, has been um, determined to be one of the happiest cultures on earth. And obviously it's a third world country and impoverished by uh, the comparison to our, uh, our country here in North America. But um, they're happier. And the reason that they determined, by, they determined that their happiness results largely from a healthy daily contemplation of death because the problems that we have in one sense, the anxiety that we have that our, that our life is pervaded by is, is in one sense a result of trying to hang on to things that, that we can't hang on to. Hmm? Trying to uh, attachments. Attachment in the, in the Bhagavad Gita is said to be the womb from which suffering is born because if you attach to a thing and you like it, well, inevitably you'll find out that what the world teaches is that you can't keep it. And the more you like it, then the more sorrowful it becomes, if you will, when you, when you can't hang on to it, you can't keep it. We're trying to keep, we're trying to secure a position in this world, and the, and the ground is, is soft. Hmm? It's uh, The more you move, 
the more you go down, the more you move in trying to control and and um, win the game, so to speak, and beat beat nature, if you will. So our thinking is that that is folly. That 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 even the appearance of such with the modern advancements through technology and so forth, um, may not be so in a larger sense. There may be some relative gains, and there's room for that. But then if you, if you improve your material situation, that's one thing. But if your purpose in life is only to perfect the material situation, we would consider that material perfection to be an oxymoron itself. Hmm? That uh, you press down here, it comes up there. So we make the perfect America at the cost of... Who knows how many other uh, countries? For example, the American dream is, is not the world dream. The nation state is that nationalism itself is um, a violence, if you will. And um, you know, with all the all the protestations, as the, and there should be such about racism. What about nationalism? Hmm. Can get pretty ugly, of course. So. Our approach, then, is to work with matter in the objective world to an extent to improve within reason our material situation such that we will be facilitated for pursuing something more than um, the dream of material perfection. And if the dream of material perfection is to live forever and freeze your body and you know have it come come back and and so on, then we think that there's another way to go about that. We do think that is the dream or the hope in one sense of everyone. We want to live and we want to live happily and without end. Without saying so. I mean nobody wants to die or if they do want to die, they want to die because it would, they think they'll be happier by doing so. So um we want to live, we want to live happily, and uh, to live happily would be to live also an enduring life. And so our approach is, our idea is no different than anyone else's. We just have a different idea of how we've got to go about it. And it involves, rather than trying to master nature, which is, you know, if you want to do away with God, it's pretty hard, because from, a, from an atheistic, strictly atheistic point of view, which can be just as militant and fundamentalist at times as, as some forms of, of religion. Um, but it doesn't have to be. But uh, nonetheless, when we want to do away with the God idea, the controller, we don't really do away with the controller. We become the controller. Hmm. So you really can't get away, in a sense, from, from the idea of who's going to control. Hmm. Our ability to control is, is, is limited. Our progress in controlling and mastering nature is thought to be immense. And in one sense, it is, perhaps, if we look from um, you know, a, a more primitive uh, civilization to our civilization, which could be primitive too, but it looks you know, more developed than in some ways it is. Um, still, in, in terms of mastering nature, it, it's like trying to you know get close to the moon and thinking we're make, we're getting somewhere because we've climbed into a tree now hmm. that's about how close we are to mastering nature and being the gods if you will hmm. 
Now, that there is no control, I don't think uh, uh, one can pause it like that, as I say, but then we try to be the controller. So we think there is some control, we think there is some intelligence to nature. Hmm. And um, we think that reality is alive, in other words, has a life of its own, and we are part of it. So rather than trying to master nature for the sake of mastering it and the pursuit of, you know, the, the myth of modern science, as I said the other night, is that uh, uh, salvation, well, salvation through modern science, that the frailty, the, the shortcomings of, of, that we find in the hell of humanity because humanity has shortcomings, we'll be saved from that through modern science by entering into robotic heaven, if you will. That's pretty questionable whether you want to be saved <laughs> to enter into such, uh, you know, a, a so-called heaven where there is no meaning other than the one that you make up. Hmm? And if there's any overarching meaning, it's to be militant against the idea that there's any overarching meaning. Hmm? So this, to me, doesn't appear to be a very desirable uh, form of heaven, if you will, or, or a salvation. But anyway, it's, it's the myth that much of modern society is, 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 is running on. Hmm? Our idea is a little older, but that doesn't make it any worse. Hmm? It might make it better. Hmm? And it's a gentle idea also. It's an idea that there should be material perfection. We're not against scientific development or technological development in the taking the scientific objective facts and putting them in the hands of technologically uh, thoughtful persons and uh, and so forth and improving the material situation. But again, within limits, within limits, and they're with, with a purpose behind it, that we might be facilitated hmm, for pursuing our ideal to be happy, to live, live happily ever after, if you will, by entering into exploring the depths of the subjective world, the world of qualities, rather than the world of quantities, the world of velocity and sound, velocity and, and weight and density and so forth. These are all quantitative uh, realities of the, the physical objective world. And then we have the qualitative reality, which is the subjective world, which is obviously more important <laughs> to us. Hmm? And so, to enter into that hmm, and fi- then and find the prospect there. And so this uh, approach, the pros- find the, the idea is theoretically the prospect of living forever happily can be found within. Hmm? Um, so, therefore, our approach to nature is more of a, a kinder approach, a loving approach. Grover Cleveland, one of the presidents of the United States, has been quoted as having said that uh, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. And so, our thought is that if you approach the material world, the objective world, the world of things... Hmm, if you will, um, with this kindness in mind, not trying to master it, control it, conquer it, um, and so on and so forth, and fight with it. 
if you will, but um, to work uh, with it and with something very kind in mind. Hmm? Um, uh, gentleness, a nonviolence, uh, um, a serving disposition. Serving, if you love someone, my Guru Maharaj used to say, if you love someone, then you, you want to serve them. Hmm? You want to do the things that they want. That's it's natural. Hmm? Um, so, to approach with a serving disposition rather than with the view to, to for mastery over nature. Hmm? The idea is that um, then nature will reveal her secrets. And the big secret is thought to be that nature has a soul, and it's you, hmm? has an atma, a self, that, 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 that transcends the biological and even the psychological sense of self. Hmm. And uh, so the approach to realizing that is one more of like survival of the kindest, something like that. Uh, and that may even, you know, you might even, t- I don't, there's probably no real moral judgment there in a Darwinian perspective. I mean, you could turn to that even from that point of view that, well, if we are going to preserve ourselves, we should be kind to one another and, uh, and so forth. And my thought, of course, is if, if, if the thinking can, could really turn like that, then something else will come out, will be revealed. That's not an evolute uh, of, is that a noun? <laughs> something that evolves out of, it's not something that evolves out of um, matter, but it actually drives matter in some way. We can't explain exactly how, but such as the power of consciousness by proximity to matter, it drives it. Just like, so the example in the sacred text is that the Godhead, poetically speaking, by glancing, by reflecting on matter, causes it to move. So, just to give an example, some things happen only because somebody's watching. Because I'm witnessing, something happens. So you could use it as an argument that somehow mystically, if you will, there's no physical contact in a sense, but my presence, at, even at a distance, watching, witnessing, knowing, causes something to happen. Of course, there are other examples. These are just analogies. They don't prove anything, but they help us to get an idea of what's being talked about in the sacred texts of the East. Analogies, for example, from quantum mechanical perspective and so forth, where something happens here and it affects something at a distance, I don't know, non-locality, Bell's theorem or something, I'm not an expert on it, but um, which is uh, mystical in a sense. So the idea is that consciousness in proximity to matter makes matter matter, which is true, we know that. That I'm, we know that I'm a conscious entity, and and matter takes shape and meaning and has value because of me. So, so um, a very different approach. And the song depicts that approach. And so um, he 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 begins by. 
describing his deity. Hmm? Um, Sri Chaitanya, which is a big subject, of course. And then this, the, the extended entourage, if you will, of the deity, and all of which has certain ontological significance. This is all, of course, part of the, the, uh, the, the depth of the subjective world. But he goes through Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his associates and so on. And all the way to the end, then he, he, he it's a song of praise. So he praises Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, his various associates, and then his, his guru, then and the, the, the students of his guru, and places himself somewhere, you know, beneath them. Hmm? That the servant of the servant of the servant of the servant, Pujapadshira Marsh once told me, who wrote the song, he said, our position is in the fifth position. First there's God, then there's a servant of God, then there's a servant of the servant of God, then there's a servant of the servant of the servant of God, and then there's us, something like that. So, so the point I'm making here is that this is a kind of a backwards way of thinking. It's kind of inverse, you know. Rather than trying to push oneself in the fore to get ahead and be noticed and so forth, to gravitate towards the the serving end and the and there's an advantage there hmm? therefore we find in our tradition this competition between god and the devotee to serve one another and god takes a position of as as a servitor ultimately in the form of sri chaitanya and the serving itself is the god of god hmm? as well as of ourselves hmm? therefore the godia um, chant Jai Radhe said, glorifying Radha, the personification of service and love, Krishna, the personification that, that constitutes the perfect object of love, Radha, the embodiment of love, and that embodiment of love is draws the, the Godhead and draws ourselves together. Mm-hmm. So she, she, or love and service, holds the highest uh, position. So it's very much a song that. In, evokes a a serving ego, properly understood, hmm. and and this is the antithesis of our present ego or identity, which is one that is derived from taking from from nature. In other words, our identity is 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 very much tied to our um, desires and attachments. If I'm attached to California, I think myself, I am California, because I'm attached to California. I, I like California. Um, if I like, you know, a certain type of car, well, there's one out there for you, for sure. They've got your psychology figured out, and there's one, you know, just for you. And so you are a, a Volvo guy, you know, or whatever. You're Californian, you're an American, you're this or that. And all this, this and that ha- really has to do with your desires, your likes and your dislikes. I don't like that, and I like this, therefore I'm not that, and I'm this. And, and all these things are really very much something that could change radically, isn't it? I might like this for a while, I might like California, but then there might be a drought for 20 years, and <laughs> I might not like it. <laughs> and so the, the, the idea that I'm a Californian, could, could, for many reasons, could change. So it's, it's, a, it's a very fleeting kind of sense of identity. I mean, if you go even further, I'm a human being. You know, well, for now you are. 
what will be after that, who, who can say? And, and so, so um, that whole sense of identity is born from or derived from a sense of our attachment and our choosing hmm, happies and sads, goods and bads in relation to the objective world, the world of things that are here today and gone tomorrow. So it's it's a very shaky kind of identity because anything that is part of our identity, this is why in Bhagavad Gita, in the very first chapter, the, the whole Bhagavad Gita, which is kind of the, could be called like the Bible of Hinduism, uh, although it's very different than the Bible, being a dissertation on the nature of being rather than a a call to believing. Um, um, the setting is a battlefield, and in the battle, the warrior Arjun is drawn up on a chariot by Krishna to see who's assembled there, and he sees his, his attachments that he has to fight with. Hmm? And, and, he, and his, it's his whole identity, in other words, has to be unraveled. Hmm? Um, it's, a, it's a scary idea, but then there's the encouragement to say, but no, unravel that false identity, and the real identity comes out, and look what it's like. It's so... Then he goes on to speak about the nature of the Atma, the self, the, 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 uh, uh, the unit of consciousness that we are, and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't need to be. It's, it's enduring, it's eternal, it's knowledgeable, rather than inert, and, uh, and uh, full of bliss, and so on and so forth. Um, so... Um, that's the challenge, then, if you will, um, uh, to dismantle the false conventional sense of self and the narrow ideas of loving and kindness that that, that um, arise out of it. They may be good, but they're they they have to be narrow necessarily, because I may love you, but then that might mean I don't love you. I like you, but I don't love you, but and I might even not like you at all. So it's. One side of the coin or another, loving you might be hating someone else. Loving Israel might be hating Palestine. Or, uh, so, to get beyond that contradiction, if you will, and to truly be, truly know in a way that you feel there's nothing left to be known, I'm complete. And then you're in a position, really, to love when you're full in yourself. Then you're really in a position to love, to give. So this is um, this is the, our um, our ideal, and it's, it's at the core. Then what we're trying to do is convert this enjoying ego, this, take, this taking ego. I mean, this ego that's derived from being attached. Attachment to a thing looks like I love it. But really, it's it's something else because I'm seeing it as an object, whether it be a person or or a thing, um, an object that that for myself for my purposes. So um, that taking exploitive ego, enjoying ego, if you will, is to be converted into a, into a serving ego, which again is the basis of of loving. So. Um, that's easier said than done, but at the core, that's what the song is. It, it, it um, um, speaks to us about 
And in the context of that, there's a beautiful description of different um, of Chaitanya, different associates, and the nature of the. Uh, and we are transported when singing the song and hearing the name of this associate or that into the various leelas or divine um, play of of the of the Godhead, and uh, so that the the whole prospect of the Gore leelas is brought before us. And then the way to enter it is the spirit in which the song has been written. Hmm. Once we were in, in, in West Bengal and Pujapatrita Marsh, one of my associates asked that uh, Guru Marsh said, I, I'm here at your monastery and I'd like to do some service here. And so Sridhar uh, Marsh replied, um, yes, he said, Try to change your angle of vision. Now, if he had said, maybe you could, you know, pick some weeds, or you know, you could cut some vegetables, or something like that, that would have been a lot easier. But he got to went right without kind of thinking about it in a calculated way. He's serve. You want to serve? Oh, yes. That is. You have to change your angle of vision entirely. What am I? What is the world? We are an ob- we are uh, we are the subject in a sense, and matter is the object. It appears to be inert and to be used for our purposes. Hmm. But the serving ego sees differently. While there may be the truth to the fact that I, as a conscious entity, an entity constitutive consciousness, am superior to an inert. Hmm. Um, manifestation uh, of matter. Hmm? When I look down, I may appear to be the subject, and matter is the object. But if I look up, I find there's a super subject that I am a spark, if you will, of the fire of consciousness. And therefore, I cannot unto myself illumine the whole show, and therefore I'm Although matter is subordinate to me, matter often takes over my life. It takes a viewer to turn on the television, but the television could take over the life of the viewer. It happens. So although we're a unit of consciousness, we're a tiny unit. We're superior in quality, so to speak, to to inert matter, but the vastness of matter can kind of cover us, so to speak. It doesn't put out the light. doesn't change our constitution. If you were to take a box and put it over the light, the light would still be there, but it wouldn't shine in the room. Our position can become something like that. So we've identified with matter. And the problems of matter become our problems. What are the problems of matter? Well, they're not really problems, but they're problems for us. Because we're a unit of enduring reality, and we've identified with something that's constantly in flux and transformation. Hmm? And so there's worries, and it looks like I'm transforming, I'm changing, I'm dying, and, uh, and so forth. So we look at death as just as a, as a, a perspective hmm, that's troublesome because we've identified with something that's constantly in flux and transformation and, and, and won't endure any of the ingredients of it or the whole composite. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sure recipe for a life of some measure, at least, of 
anxiety, some anxiousness. Hmm. And it's there, just like the birds, you know. <laughs> we have it too. Hmm, right? so, some measure of, of anxiety. It pervades some fear. Hmm. And so, and it's we who are thinking about things. What are we then? Hmm. Like I was saying the other day when I was a young man living in the Santa Cruz Mountains about your age, and I, I would sit and think, what will I do? What will I be? Hmm. And everything I thought of, I saw it, 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 some shortcomings to it, that's, it, it wouldn't endure. And, and I started to think, who's thinking, what will I be? Hmm. What will I be in relation to things? What about the one that's thinking? What is it? Hmm. What is it? What am I? Hmm. And it, naturally, my idea of what I could be in relation to things is smaller than what I, what I am because the things don't think, what will I be? Hmm. The things are non-experiential. I'm a unit of experiential reality. Wow. I'm different in a in considerable measure. I'm like categorically different. So if I, I, why should I think of being something in relation to something that is entirely different from myself and arguably inferior? I am something. What is that? What is the I? Hmm? And for that, of course, then this is what meditation is for, to experience, to explore, and... and uh, and so forth, and be what 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 we are, so to speak, which is a great adventure exploration. Hmm? It's not just some religious dogma, but we, we we are advocating experiential spiritual life to actually investigate the uh, the world of I. I is the most um, used word in the English language, and the same in every other language. It's the word we use most and the word we know least about. Hmm. Oh, it might be worth spending some time hmm. investigating. <laughs> investigating. That's what, that's what spiritual life, as we understand it, is, is really about. So it's quite an exciting um, idea. Hmm. And so anyway, this song that is chorus is it just speaks about the kind of properly understood the kind of identity ego ego means identity here, kind of identity that enables us to be a a player, if you will, in the subjective world. We're a unit of consciousness, but we're just like a spark. So meanwhile, that should be apparent that I'm superior to matter, but Sometimes I'd get overwhelmed by matter. Hmm? Now, if there's a spark, then what about the fire? So, that fire will not be overwhelmed by by matter. So I make my connection there. I'm a capitalist, and it's this uh, just an analogy. And so I make a connection with a bigger capitalist who has more capital. Hmm? With my source, connected with my source, then I have the power to not be 
bewildered, if you will, by the glare and the carrot of the package of material nature. I, th- I like to think that America's greatest contrib- contribution to the world is packaging. Hmm. <laughs> uh, you can sell any, any damn thing. Just package it right. Something like that. So material nature, it, it packages itself in different ways that appear uh, to offer more than what they do when they disappear. Just like in a dream. At night things come and they disappear. So it is in the waking state as well. They, they appear, they disappear. So to step back and witness the appearance and just the appearance of things. And then we realize death is an appearance. Oh my, it has nothing to do with me. Hmm. Now, now I have, I'm standing on a different, different ground. And then what, what, what is to be, what, what, what will be the sun that arises on that uh, inner horizon? What's the inner, inner, inner landscape? Hmm. Having transcended death and the fear. If we knew the extent to which we existed, we would have no fear. Hmm. No anxiety. Then just the beginning of what, what it is the inner life can uh, afford us. So while we look down, it matter, we look like the subject. When we look up to our source, we almost look like, an, like matter looks to us in relation to the source. You understand? As matter appears to be at our disposal to be used as we like, we are at the disposal of our source to be used as the Godhead likes, it just so happens that the Godhead has a big idea <laughs> that's much bigger than the idea between our ears that we could come up with by which we could become happy, which is inevitably at the cost of someone else's happiness. Hmm. It's, it's, there's just like no way around that. Hmm. So the, in the mind of God, the idea is that, then that living from that in relation to that perspective, which is just to adjust our angle of vision, as I said earlier, then we can live in such a way that no one will be not, not our happiness will be considerable, and it will not be at the cost of anyone else's happiness. Indeed, arguably, it will foster real happiness in, in the lives of others. So, you know, you think about it. What, I mean, what? How big of an idea can you come up with? a national idea, a global idea, a intergalactic idea. Somebody's going to complain with whatever we do. I mean, whether it be microbes or whatever, you know, some form of life or, or the non-animate, inanimate. So how to, how, to, how to stop all that? How to be kind in the fullest sense? That's what spiritual life's about. And to then to, then to learn how to move there systematically. Hmm? So with all the things we do, this is at the bottom line, we try to convert this exploiting ego into a serving ego. When we see ourselves in relation to our source and think that, well, we're a part of something, and so our purpose will be known, realized, um, 
in relation to the whole, not independent of the whole. We may resist the idea of being a part, because I want to be the whole. Hmm? Maybe not consciously, but I want to be in control. And, and To be controlled sounds rather frightening and um, maybe disconcerting, but then yeah, we experience the nature of the control. We're controlled by love, by kindness, by affection, and so forth. And that's not a problem. And what happens? If I control you by love, then, then you love me. Then what happens? Then you control me. <laughs> so this kind of relationship we want with our source. Hmm? To be controlled by love of God, by God's love, and, and then to love God, God becomes controlled by us. That's the, whole, that's the idea of Krishna consciousness. Therefore, the God it becomes hmm, accessible on intimate terms. Hmm. So we we can see, as I'm saying, that, that you know we're different from matter. I mean, that's the, I'm just saying that is our intuitive sensibility, and it's a reasonable sensibility. And I want to say also, there's nothing that that idea does not break any known natural laws. It doesn't contradict any scientific fact of observation. People may speculate that there is no self, there is, and consciousness is just part of the brain and so forth. But the explanatory gap to cross, to bridge, to arrive at that being demonstrable and observable is wider than the Grand Canyon. It's wider than the Pacific Ocean. It's hugely, it's a hugely speculative leap hmm, that uh, people may be willing to make based on the advances, as they're thought of, of materialism hmm. in terms of making our lives better as it seems to some, although it's questioned hmm, by many, many of whom don't necessarily have a spiritual worldview even. Hmm. So, so yeah, the idea from our perspective is that uh, there is something, an ontological reality called consciousness. We're a unit of that. It's, it pervades the, the, uh, the world. It gives meaning to matter. Hmm. It's superior in that sense to matter, but it's subordinate to its, its source. And when, it's, it, when it sees itself in relation to its source, then its full meaning is realized, and, and then it interacts with matter in a way that's friendly and sustainable and so on. There's a lot in that song. <laughs> Let's uh, go over some, some themes we've, we've discussed at other times. But going to the core, the idea of the, the replacing the serving ego with the um, enjoying or the taking ego is replacing it with the giving ego. And so again, you know, in the, in the cultural sense, then this is expressed in our sect and in much Indian culture with the, you know, this kind of set of shaking the hand, which is a way of greeting and showing respect. It's the, the namaskar, nama. It's, it's not me. It's not about me. It's kind of what we say. It's not about me. And then sometimes they put in a head on the 
on the floor that might be touched by the dust of the feet of all you saintly people who are walking in the world only for the purposes of uh, a spiritual pursuit and upliftment and so on. It's a very worshipable, worshipful, I should say, um, culture. And worship is really a beautiful thing, and it probably has a bad name. Worship. Uh, somebody's there, and you're, you know, not equal, and and so on and so forth. Sounds bad. You're being suppressed, and so on. But you have to go a little deeper underneath the surface of it to understand the idea. Actually, the worshiper is in a better position than the worship, that which is worshipped. This is our theology. Therefore, the worshipful desires to take the position of the, of the worshiper. I mean, we say it also in common English parlance that giving is receiving. Just play that out. No dogma. <laughs> Just play it out. Giving is receiving. So how to give without expectation of return? The more we try to do that, and the object of our service will be honed by the serving itself. The serving ego will hone the object. In other words, we may try to give selfless service to an object that's not capable of taking it, receiving it. But if we try, nonetheless, we'll get wisdom from that and see how to hone the object of our service, find the perfect object of service. Like in the body, to use a human body example, animal body example, then we could say the stomach is the center. So all the parts should give the food to the stomach because only the stomach can deal with the food in such a way as to transform it and energize all the parts. If the hand and the tongue rebel against the stomach, that would be a problem for the hand and the tongue. Of course, in that example, it would be a problem for the stomach as well, but in the larger one it won't be. <laughs> so to find the center where we can give fully, we have to find that which can take fully. And that which can take fully is what we mean by the Godhead. And in the context of taking, the capacity to transform the taking into giving universally. And same example, if you, take, if you want to water the whole tree, you pour the water on the root. So to find the root of existence, to water that, nourish the whole thing. It's a beautiful idea. So, again, it's very simple. Everyone knows it. You learn it in school or you don't even learn it without, you can't learn. Nobody can probably remember where they learned that to give is to receive. That just kind of learned. And we learn it by our experience. Before someone says it, we just go, yeah. We can't hold up to show what we've got from giving, but we've got something. It's not that you got 10 points or $10 necessarily, that you got, you grew, you grew. You became bigger. You became more of a, that much, and what did you get? You got the, you got the capacity to give more. That's what you got. Hmm. How to become a lover. Hmm. To give is to receive. So 
So the, the giving side, the worshiper, is in the best position. This is a point that's lost perhaps sometimes when we say, come to our place of worship. You know, maybe we don't use those terms because they bring up certain connotation in people's mind that doesn't really get to the core of what it is or distorts what we're really talking about here, what we're doing here. Come to our service of giving or something, I don't know. <laughs> Come and give with us. So, uh, what else? What's the time? I think maybe we stop there. And, and uh, you've just come here and jumped right into all this. So maybe <laughs> take. Uh, are you hungry at all? Okay, when anyway, then on the mic and help you get situated and so forth. Jai. Jai. Jai.